This message was recorded at North 2012, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Great, I'd like to make a start, so if you could just find your seats, that would be wonderful. There might be a few more people coming to join us, um, but it's gone three o'clock and I wanted to make sure we get to the hour that we have. Um, I toyed with whether I should stay up here or whether I should get down here, but you look quite frightening, so I'm going to stay up here. Um, I'm sure you're not. I'm sure you're very, very cuddly and all the rest of it, but um, let's just pray together, and then I'd love to just get into uh, our subject for this afternoon. We thank you already, Father, for the knowledge of your presence here with us, and we thank you for that tremendous reminder this morning from Dave about your big plan pictures for for us as a people, your, your tremendous grace in even those of us who are far off being brought back into your uh, kingdom purposes, into your love, into your mercy. And as we look this afternoon at this topic of the kind of church that's going to impact our nation, I pray, Lord, that we would hear things that will be helpful for us back in our local churches, that we'll be able to take things with us that will be uh, full of instruction and if there are things we touch on this afternoon that we've heard a hundred times before I pray still they would ignite something in our hearts that still they would take our breath away in terms of your purposes for your people I ask it in Jesus name Amen Um, I want to start by reading to you the topic that you've got in your program and then I can go on to tell you why I'm not talking about it Well, I am really, but it's going to come out a bit different. Um, Today and tomorrow, this seminar title is Building Churches Empowered by Word and Spirit. And under today's topic, it's Word and Spirit Churches, the only hope for the UK. As churches are closing all over the UK, we look at the vital ingredients of building churches that will not only survive secular Britain, but will change it. How can you guarantee that your church will be one of them, and how can you play a key part? And what I want to talk about today is how God views your local church, how God views the church in the UK that will make a real impact upon this particular nation. And I want to start by reading some verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, I don't know if you take Bibles to afternoon seminars at a place like this but if you have you might find it helpful to just uh, read this with me and I want to start here and I want to then uh, unpackage for us I think my main passion this afternoon is that we go out of here in an hour's time really pumped up once again about God's purposes for the local church it's a subject that I love to talk about it's a subject I never get tired of speaking about I hope for you it's a subject you don't get tired of hearing about (laughs) because you're going to be hearing stuff. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. And I love this particular uh, passage of scripture because to me it sums up a desire that God has for your church and for my church, and it's this, that we should model something that impacts both believers and impacts unbelievers. And for the Apostle Paul, when it comes to the Thessalonian church, which I think were a bit of a favorite, if you're allowed to have favorites of of his, and notice he'd lived amongst them, he knew them really well inside out, 
he says to the church, you know, one of the things that's a hallmark of you is you're modeling something that has become a reputation in your surrounding district and not only where you are but beyond, in fact, all of Asia, all around Everybody, when they think about you, you are modeling something for them as to what church should look like, how people should be in relationship with one another, what kind of church Jesus is building. And for him, the Thessalonian church was such an example. He didn't choose the Corinthian church because they had one or two little problems they had to sort out. He loved the Corinthian church just as he loved this church. But he highlights this. He he kind of says, you are a model of what I want church to be. I'm proud of you. You're not perfect. You've got a long way to go. But there's hallmarks about you that are a model for what people need to see. Now, this is my burden this afternoon, that the UK needs churches that model the kind of things that Jesus wants to build amongst us. And as Christ Central Churches, it's great being able to use these names now, I don't think the issue is how many churches you're going to be able to plant in the next 20 years. I think the issue is what kind of churches will be established. We could litter the UK with churches everywhere, which would be great. But at the end of the day, the churches that make the impact are churches that a certain kind of church. One of the comments about New Frontiers over the last 30 years, often that I have heard is when it comes to establishing church or planting church, you are rather slow at the way that you do it. And I used to get quite (coughs) defensive of that because I used to think, actually, we're doing faster than I thought we would do. The reality is the comment was made because when you plant something, it takes time to build foundations. It takes time to build relationships. It takes time to create the kind of community that will eventually make an impact upon where we live. And we're living in a day where things come and go really quickly. I live in London. I can tell you over the last 30 years of churches that came and went, came and went. They burst on the scene and they're nowhere. And there's something rather sad about that. And there's something rather exciting about digging in, building church, in a way that will not be here today and gone tomorrow, but will be lasting and impacting. And I love, I've been based in the same church for for 34 years. Um, I'm not there very often, but when I am, uh, I love being in a community that has soldiered on decade after decade and is still making the same impact, perhaps in some ways even more impact today than we've ever made in the past. And this is what I want to talk about today, what kind of churches will model to believers and unbelievers the community that Jesus is building together. And a little later on, I'm going to give you six areas of church life which I think is vital for longevity and vital for impact upon the communities in which we actually are working in. But I want to begin, I'm looking out upon you as I'm talking, wondering whether how relevant this will be to many of you, because I think you're already converted. I don't mean become Christians, I mean to what I'm about to say. I would like to spend some time before we get to those six areas, just reminding you of the tremendous uh, passion that Jesus has for his church, your church, and catching you and I up in that very passion itself. I think it was Matt Hatch last night when he was introducing Jeremy said, one of the things I like about Jeremy is uh, two things. One was his passion for Jesus and his passion for the church. And when I heard that statement, I thought to myself, I hope everybody gets introduced like that. And that you would be introduced. You're known for someone very passionate for Jesus and very passionate for the local church. I don't think you can separate those two things. I think you can find lots of Christians who are very passionate for Jesus and are sadly, for whatever reason, not very turned on when it comes to local church. They may have had bad experiences. They may have been let down. They may have had a vision that was never realized. And basically, some of them have given up on the local church. I don't know if you know what the biggest church in London is, but 
really the biggest church in London where I live is actually a church full of people that don't actually have an address. What I mean by that is I travel around quite a lot to different places. I, I bump into different people and say, oh, so how long have you been coming here? And they say, well, I don't actually come here. So well, what are you doing here? Well, we're just looking. And you find all over London there are thousands of people who are wanting God's purposes but are actually quite disillusioned when it comes to the local church. They haven't got an address. They haven't got a place where they're accountable. They haven't got a place where they're working out their Christian life. And the biggest church in London is what I call the church of floats. They're just kind of floating all over the place. They're, they're not really linked in. And that's got to change, brothers and sisters, as we build churches where people can say, yes, I'm very passionate about Jesus. And look, in this church, we're working it out together in this kind of way. If you've still got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And uh, I just want to read very, very familiar verses to us from Acts chapter 2 to remind us of the kind of picture of the church that Jesus is building. I don't think we're whistling in the dark. I don't think we're guessing. I wonder what kind of church would, would it look like to be a model church. I think the Bible gives us clear mandate as to the kind of church that we are and what we're supposed to be. I want to read to you from verse 42. They devoted, and think of your church as I'm reading this, okay? Or, or maybe not. <laughs> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wonder if you've ever asked yourself, why is this passage of Scripture here for us to read 2,000 years later. And if you're like me and you look at the ingredients that I've just read out of what this church was like, which is the kind of church I believe we are meant to be today, you can probably get snippets of this in your own church experience. And there are ingredients here that you can relate to. But like me, you might also say, but there's a lot about our church that's not like this. There's a lot about us where we're not as devoted where there isn't that sense of awe, where there may not be signs and wonders being performed, where we don't have everything in common, where perhaps we don't have our homes open and we're eating together and glad with sincere hearts. And maybe we're in a church that isn't, as it says at the end, the Lord adding to their number daily those who are being saved. So what on earth is the point of this passage of Scripture being there? Because it looks to some of us like a, a carrot dangled before us. Here's what the church should look like. And every time we kind of grasp it, it's taken away from us. Is this just ideal? Is it a dream? Is it something which is absolutely wonderful but was only for the first century? Is it something there, if I can use this phrase, to mock us? Because I sometimes think we look at these phrases and we, we come up with excuses and we think, well, this is there to just mock us. I want to suggest to you this is not to mock us. This is a model of what church life should be. And for me, my part, I am working and praying and giving my life to be in churches that are similar to this. These people weren't perfect. They lived very mundane lives. But you see in these scriptures a kind of church. And think about it for a moment. This is the kind of church that would transform our society. If this was really happening today in your church and mine, the impact that we were making is remarkable. So there's only two ways you can look at a passage of scripture like this. Is it there to mock us? Or is it there as an example and the model for what we are believing God for? I believe it's the second. Who else believes that? Anybody else? Good. 
I absolutely believe there would be no point in these scriptures being there if it was a dream that could never be realized, an idealistic thing that could only ever happen in heaven. When people talk about church in heaven, I always think it's exciting, but it's too late. And the reason it's too late is because that's done now, but what about this earth? And isn't the church on earth to make an impact upon the earth rather than wait till heaven? It's like, I don't want to keep illustrating from, from, from London, but we have this big issue at the moment on, on the black and white issue. And, and I absolutely passionately don't believe in white churches, and I equally don't, passionately do not believe in black churches or black majority churches. But London's full of one or the other. Now there's some really great moves going on. Hallelujah. That's beginning to change that. But unless it does change, we will always model for our city that the gospel doesn't really work. And I know there'll be every tribe and every tongue and every language in heaven, but wouldn't it be wonderful if all of that was happening on earth as a prophetic statement to our society that in the gospel, as we were hearing so clear this morning, we are one in Christ. We are one together. And folks, I have to say to you, having read Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, if you go on, and we haven't got time today to read the story of the church that's described throughout the book of Acts. It describes something radical. It describes the word I would use, I think, to encapsulate it as a, a, as a church that's robust, it's strong, it's impacting, it's tremendous, it's exciting, it has its problems, but it's moving forward. And I want to model what we're doing in the north here of England and other places into other nations not an English version of this, or an American or African or Asian version, but a biblical version. In other words, what is, what is mentioned here works. It works in any culture, in any generation, at any time or any season. When I became a Christian many years ago, I was in a church which was, which was nothing like this. Um, I'm now in a church which is a little bit more like this. <laughs> But I knew enough when I was first saved to know something radical has to change. Because when I read these scriptures and I see the kind of church that was alive and well in the first century and I see the ingredients that are so necessary for us today, Lord, I, I want to give my life to seeing this become a reality. And I remember very early on uh, when I didn't understand very much, I'd never heard the word apostle, I didn't get church really. All I knew was that something radically had to change. And I remember going through a time in my life, which was early on in, in leadership, where I got ruined for this. And the reason I didn't want to rush on to, here are the six things that are going to make an impact, is because we need to get more and more people ruined for this vision of local church, believing that it happens today in the 21st century. So I am, if I was to make an appeal right now, it would be to ruin you. I want everybody in this sermon ruined for this. And the reason you need to get ruined is because there are so many obstacles and so many distractions and so many disillusionments along the way that if you're ruined for this, you'll overcome all of those things. You'll never waver. <clears throat> it doesn't matter about your experience. It doesn't matter what happens. This is dogged. This is something in you whereby you're saying, I know, I know, I know that this is going to come to pass. And I believe this, that a lot of what ruins us is catching a vision of what is promised. Not only by looking back into these scriptures, but by seeing what God has said about the church and actually not, not veering away from that but living by the promises of what God has declared. So when Jesus said, I'm going to remind you of some of the promises, you will be the salt of the earth. Let's just stop and think about that just for a second. That's a promise. My people will be the salt of the earth. Salt does two things. It flavors food that needs it, and it preserves food from rotting. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying, 
my church in society. You're not taken out of society. You're in society. You will, you will add flavor to society when things have gone rotten and you'll preserve it from going down the wrong way. It's a remarkable statement. Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. Christians are funny people because we kind of say to people that we talk to, don't look at us, look at Jesus. He's the light of the world. And then Jesus is saying, but you are the light of the world. Who is the light of the world? The answer, of course, is Jesus is putting us on display. He's saying to the world, if you want to see me, look at my people. And I don't want to preach a, a sermon series on God is love without being able to say to people, and if you come amongst us, you'll see something of the love of God manifest amongst us. God is power. Come amongst us, you'll see God is joy. Come amongst us and you'll see his joy. We are on display. And then, of course, Jesus said that we will be like a city upon a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, I want, I want you to stay with me just for a few moments. I know it's the afternoon and all the rest of it, but just stay with me. These are the kind of things that grip me. Because I'm not just going to go to church on Sunday mornings. How about you? I'm not just going in and out of a building. I'm part of a community that is seeking to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of darkness around. We're the light. We show people how to walk. And that we're a city upon a hill that cannot be hidden. I passionately believe that that's true. And the only thing that's going to change our society is the is church expressions all over the nation that are like city upon a hill. They might not want to put you on the backs, back burner somewhere and make you disappear around the corner, but the church is going to be like a city upon a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus said, my house, the church, will be a house of prayer for all nations. See, the way, I, the way it works for me is, as I look at my local church and as I go and see other churches, I don't think what I see is the end result. I look at it through the eyes of faith because of the promises. Here's an example. My house will be a house of prayer. Every pastor in this room today has a passion that his local church will be a church full of men and women who pray. That same pastor knows getting people to the prayer meeting is the most difficult thing that anyone could ever do. I've actually tried every trick in the book to get people to prayer meetings, except one, which I will do one day, which is announce that we're all going to have a social. There's going to be a lot of food there. It's going to be a lot of fun. And then when everyone's arrived, we'll shut the doors and say, aha, it's a prayer meeting. Every pastor knows, you know, you have, say, you've got 200 people in your church. Come on, folks, let's gather next Wednesday to pray. <coughs> and out of the 225, turn up. And it's just a weird experience. And the reason it's weird, you're grateful the 25 have turned up. But if you're in a bad mood, as I've been sometimes, that only 25 have turned up, I've actually told the 25 off for being the only ones that actually got there. They're sitting there thinking, but we came. It's the rest you should be telling off. <coughs> and the reason you feel like this is because of promises like this. My house will be a house of prayer. And there will come a day when people will run to the prayer meetings. That's how I see it. I don't go down the pan because 25, I say, Lord, one day this house will be a house of prayer for all nations. The Bible goes on to describe the church in so many different ways. So many promises of the Old Testament that are now fulfilled through Christ and therefore for us as a church. Let me remind you of this one. You'll be the joy of the whole world. I mean, it's an interesting thing to think of church as the place which is the joy of the whole world. I've got a great crowd of musicians um, that gather on Sunday mornings. And one of the things I've said to them, because we're in a British culture, is this. When it's Sunday morning, it's 9.30, and we're kicking off with the first meeting. And when you look out upon the congregation, you have to say to yourself, Behold, the joy of the whole world have gathered to worship God. The reason is because they don't look like they're the joy of the whole world. And, of course, Christians in, in the UK have many manufactured a remarkable thing, which is to be joyful but not to express it. It's amazing. But we've managed to do this. So it's there on the inside, but it's just not expressed outwardly. I believe the day is going to come when society wants 
who are all looking for joy will say, do you know where to get it? The people of God. Why? Because it's the promise that Jesus has made. I'm ruined for this. I believe in it. I'm trusting it will happen in my lifetime. Jesus said that you'll be a royal priesthood. You'll be a holy nation. Jesus said that we'll be like his family on earth. Jesus said we will be a people of the word and we will be a people of the spirit. We're going to be Zion, God's dwelling place. We will be made up of every tribe, every tongue and every nation. We will be like the description in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to preach good news to the poor. The church is going to be the place where thousands of broken lives are healed and set free. This is your church. This is the church that Jesus is building. This is the church of the New Testament which was experiencing this. This is not just our past, it's our future. You are allowed to look excited about these things as I, as I talk about it because this is going to happen. But you have to get this in here. Do you understand why this is important? You have to live with this. Breathe it. Believe it. Trust God for it. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I absolutely believe that he's building his church and he will do it his way. Can I just very quickly just go through one other little exercise with you by asking you to turn to Ephesians, which we've, I've lost count of how many mountains this represents now. There's a lot of them, okay? And um, I think the book of Ephesians, which I'm going to take you through the whole Ephesians in about five minutes, is just what I'm trying to endeavor to get you through in this afternoon, whereby you say to yourself, I am ruined for this. And each chapter of Ephesians gives a picture of the church that Jesus is building. It just gives us a little description of what we should be looking for. And uh, chapter 1, verse 22, having spoken about this great Jesus who is risen and ascended on high, verse 22, and, uh, sorry, verse, uh, verse 22, yeah, and God placed all things, Ephesians 1, under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And it's just a cameo, it's just a little hint, but it says to me this, the church, the local church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Filled with God. Filled with his presence. Filled with his glory. Now, I, I'm not, I haven't got time to say what that might look like, but just let that permeate you. Some people say to me, do you believe in the glorious church? And I say, I do believe in the glorious church. And they sort of look at you and say, well, why? Look around you. It's anything but glorious. The only reason we believe in the glorious church is because we have a glorious head, Jesus. How can we have a glorious head without a body <coughs> filled with the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I'm absolutely believing to see churches that are filled with the glory of God. Chapter 2, talking about verse 19, us being <coughs> built together and foundations being laid and becoming a, a whole building which is joined together, then makes this statement in verse 22. And in him, you too, and this is a corporate thing, being built together, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Can there be any description of church that's not spirit-filled? So people say, are you a spirit-filled church? Is there any other kind? Surely there's only one kind, which is the family of God built together, and we see a picture, first picture was being filled with the fullness of God, here we see it's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. A people baptized, filled, going on being filled with the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of God, where the presence of God <coughs> is experienced. Church is about the gathering of God's people, where God's presence 
is manifest and on display. Chapter 3, context is one of being on display to principalities and powers and rulers and authorities. And Ephesians 3 verse 10, his intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There is a desire in God's heart that what he does amongst us should be seen. It should be on display. And what's been on display is the wisdom of God. If ever our nation needed to see a display of the wisdom of God, surely it's now. How does marriage work? How does parenting work? How does relationships, how do they work? How do you get out of debt? How do you live together in harmony with people that are completely different to you? We could go on and on and on and on. And someone has said already this week at, at some point, you know, this Bible has the answer to all of those questions. And it's not just a theory, it's manifest through people like you and me. UK's in a mess, okay? This is no time to leave it. Let's get out. No, 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 no. If you see there are things going wrong, that's why we're here, to make a difference. There's wisdom. There's something to be said. There's something which we should be on the front foot in, in terms of displaying. That's the kind of church we see here. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, talking about <clears throat> Jesus building his church with all these evangelists and pastors and teachers, etc., etc. Um, verse 13 until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Another picture of the church is becoming to maturity. I don't think the Bible teaches we'll ever be perfect before Jesus comes, but we should be more mature than we are at the moment. I want to be amongst the company of people that are growing up into the purpose of God, coming to unity, coming to faith, coming to stand for something. The days of immaturity must be over, surely. Our nation needs to see a strong, robust church. Verse uh, 15, instead speaking truth in love, we all grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its own work. A church which is constantly maturing. It's just over into chapter 5. Often quoted at weddings. We often think this is about the relationship of husband and wife, which it is. But it's quite clear in this passage, it's all about a mystery <clears throat> to do with the relationship of Jesus and his church. Just read to you what it says in verse 27. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. <coughs> church is supposed to be radiant. Church is supposed to radiate the glory of God. Church is supposed to be a place where we're getting rid of the things that are blemishes that prevent us from being the testimony that God in desires us to be. And then finally, in Ephesians chapter 6, I don't think it's any coincidence that the chapters finish on this whole theme of overcoming winning victory and winning battles and a lot of people have interpreted Ephesians 6 in a very individualistic kind of way <coughs> when you look at the original Greek it's virtually all about a corporate manifestation of God the armor of God the praying company of people those who stand firm in those, their faith those who deal with principalities and powers it describes to me a church which is victorious not just hanging on in there but advancing and making a difference so when Christians say to me, well, I don't know what kind of church Jesus is building. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's going to make a difference. I would submit to you. Every chapter just in the book of Ephesians reminds us, one, we're going to be filled with the fullness of God. Two, we're going to be the dwelling place of the Spirit. Three, we're going to be wisdom, manifest to principalities and powers. Fourth, we're going to be a church growing up and mature. Five, we're going to be radiant. And six, we're going to be overcoming. Is anybody getting excited or interested in being a church that is like the book of... Again, can I just argue my point? Why is it there? 
Is it there again like Acts chapter 2? Well, it's a dream. It's just an ideal thing that some of you have got. We need to be ruined. I want to unashamedly quote to you from a book called Courageous Leadership by Bill Hybels, which is actually about leadership, but he kicks off by talking to us about the vision of the church. And he's saying what I'm saying, but I want to read it because when I read this passage a few years ago, it just gripped me and I want it to grip you as well. So don't close your eyes because you might fall asleep. This is what he says. And he, incidentally, for those who don't know, leads a church of 30,000 people in Chicago. So he's obviously doing some things that are right. In the early 70s, I had an experience so powerful that it divided my life into before and after. I was a college student taking a required course in New Testament studies to complete my major. To my way of thinking, this class was guaranteed to be brain-numbingly boring. A required Bible class? It had flatliner written all over it. I was sure that the only challenge this class would offer me would be the challenge of trying to stay awake. As I staked out my usual claim to a back row seat and assumed a comfortable slouch, legs extended, arms folded, I just, if you like that, you can just change your position right now. I had no idea, listen to this, this is important. I had no idea that a spiritual ambush awaited me. Toward the end of the lecture, just when I thought it was time to pack up and leave, the professor decided he wasn't quite finished for the day. Closing his notes, he stepped out from behind the lectern and then he bared his soul to a room full of unsuspecting 20-year-olds. Students, he said, there was once a community of believers who were so totally devoted to God that their life together was charged with the Spirit's power. In that band of Christ followers, believers loved each other with a radical kind of love. They took off their masks and shared their lives with one another. They laughed, they cried, and they prayed and sang and served together in authentic Christian fellowship. Those who had more shared freely with those who had less. Socioeconomic barriers melted away. People related together in ways that bridged gender and racial chasms and celebrated cultural differences. Acts 2 tells us that this community of believers, this church, offered unbelievers a vision of life that was so beautiful it took their breath away. It was so bold, creative, dynamic that they couldn't resist it. And verse 47 tells us that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And the professor's unscripted words were as much a lament as they were a dream. A sad longing for the restoration of the first century church. I, on the other hand, had never imagined a more compelling vision. In fact, that day I didn't just see the vision, I was seized by it. Suddenly there were tears in my eyes and a responsive cord rising up in my soul. Where, I wondered, had that beauty gone? Why was that power not evident in the contemporary church? Would the Christian community ever see that potential realized again? And since that day, I have been held hostage to the powerful picture of Acts 2 dream painted in that college classroom that day. In the weeks and months after that first lecture, I was haunted by questions. What if a true community of God could be established in the 21st century? What if what happened in Jerusalem could happen in Chicago? Such a movement of God would transform this world and usher people into the next. I was utterly captivated. I was captured by a single vision of the potential beauty of the local church. 
1975, that vision led me and a handful of colleagues to start Willow Creek Community Church. And now, almost 40 years later, that vision still rivets my attention, sparks my passion, and calls forth the best effort I can give. He goes on to say this. I believe that only one power exists on this sorry planet that can truly transform the human heart. And it's the power of the love of Jesus Christ. The love that conquers sins and wipes our shame and heals wounds and reconciles enemies and patches broken dreams and ultimately changes the world one life at a time. And you know what grips my heart every day? is the knowledge that the radi- this radical message of the transforming love of Christ has been given to the church. And that means that in a very real way, the future of the world rests in the hands of local congregations like yours and mine. It's the church, or it's lights out. Without churches so filled with the power of God that they can't help but spill goodness and peace and love and joy into the world, depravity will win the day. Evil will flood the world. But it doesn't have to be that way. Strong, growing communities of faith can turn the tide of history. They can. Don't bother looking anywhere else. The church is it. And there's nothing like the church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. (coughs) It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of additions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. And whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. Still to this day, the potential of local church is almost more than I can grasp. No other organization on earth is like the church. Nothing even comes close. <laughs> When you catch this sort of vision of the local church, you do get ruined. It's just good to know you're not the only one. It's just good to know this afternoon there are thousands, maybe millions of people around the world who absolutely believe this stuff and believe that it is the answer. Is it a dream? Is it idealistic? I would like to say to you, on the basis of Jesus' promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But there's an invitation to you and me this afternoon not to join a dream that may or may not take place, but to join something which is a guaranteed success. And I think if you're going to invest your time, money, life and energy in something, it's probably good to do it into something which is guaranteed 100% to succeed. And there are many causes in the world today that are good causes, but many of them are temporary. Many of them will fade. Many of them will actually give answers partially, but won't give the answer. You and I are caught up in something that's not like that. We're involved in something that is of eternal value. I don't know if it's ever, ever crossed your mind, but when we go to heaven, all that goes with us is that which is of eternal value. What God has implanted of you that's of eternal value will go into heaven forever. Has it ever occurred to you there's something else in heaven? It's called the church. I sneak to the back of the book and we are there. We make it. It's called the bride of Christ. So if I'm inviting you, come and give your time, energy, get ruined. It's not even that you're taking a risk. It's guaranteed to be 100% successful. Why? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. It's interesting, that little phrase is packed with so much. If someone promises something to you, 
You have to consider the one who promised it, and you have to think, can they do it? When Jesus says, I will build my church, this is the question, can he? Will he? And if you can answer those two questions in the affirmative, then that's it. Ruined. Give your life to it. All the disillusionments, all the disappointments, that church plant that you're involved in, it seems to be taking forever to get off the ground. It's important to come back to these promises and these scriptures and say, I absolutely believe in this. I can give my life to all of this. He will build his church. Promises are received by faith. The Bible is very clear about that. One of the great heroes of the, of the Old Testament, <coughs> so often translated into, two, into the New Testament, is Abraham. And there's that wonderful phrase in, in, Ephesians, in, sorry, in Romans chapter 4, where it says of Abraham, he became fully persuaded that that which God promised, he had the power to perform. Can I challenge you this afternoon? All of these scriptures and many more besides are promises. Jesus said, I will do this. He's just waiting for a people here in this country to be fully persuaded that what he promised he is able to do. Amen. Here are my six points. Ten minutes. It can be done. I think these are six major ingredients for the kind of church that won't just survive the 21st century, but will impact it and even be a massive influence. They're not surprises, but they're just good reminders for you to take note of. Number one, the grace of God. It's more than a doctrine. The church is made up of individuals who have heard the message of the grace of God, have allowed that message to absorb their lives, permeate every part of their life, so that it will now be on display. Acts chapter 11, <clears throat> very interesting passage of scripture. Very quickly, it's the story of evangelists that have gone down and they're preaching the gospel to the Jews and I guess like those in the land of Nod that we heard about. I love that phrase, the land of Nod. Anyway, we're going to go there. But anyway, just these guys who are far off, which is you and me. And uh, the, 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 the evangelists, and this often happens to evangelists, they, they break the rules. They're only supposed to preach to the Jews, but they forget that and they preach to everybody. So a whole load of non-Jews get saved. And this causes a furore back in Jerusalem, which is a bit ironic really, because the ones in Jerusalem have been told this will go to Samaria, the ends of the earth. They've kind of forgotten that. So they send Barnabas down to Antioch to check it out. Basically, he's there to see whether this conversion is authentic or not. And this is the phrase that Barnabas, that's used of Barnabas' testimony. He saw the evidence of the grace of God. In other words, the authenticity was, it's the real deal. These people have heard it. It's changed their lives. And we don't know what he saw, but he saw the evidence. Folks, very quickly, this nation needs to see churches filled with the grace of God where there are people who have heard the message and can proclaim the message but live the message, you and I have no idea what grace on display looks like because we've become so familiar with it. But to people who have never experienced grace, and sadly this is Christians as well as non-Christians, to come along to our communities and see something of the grace of God manifest, an atmosphere where people are welcomed as they are, where people make mistakes, but they're given another chance. Where people are generous and inclusive and genuine and all those things. <clears throat> it's just such an amazing ingredient. And this is a three-part part sermon in its own right. But I just want to headline these things. Number one, a community filled with the grace of God. The impact's going to be extraordinary. Number two, 
are people, we come to our magical formula, are people who are filled with the Word and the Spirit. I wish I had time to explain both of these, but I'll take it for granted that you understand these things. But let me just say this. The churches in the UK right now, I think, who are making the impacts that they're meant to make are churches that honour both word and spirit. These are not enemies, they're friends. I want to lead a church where people are absolutely 100% passionate about the word of God and 100% passionate about the things of the spirit. I don't want to lead a people, half of whom, when it comes to the word of God, they'll switch off because it's the spirit that we're only really interested in. Nor do I want people that are only interested in the things of the spirit don't want the word of God or vice versa, both. I want people equally as passionate about both, believing as they're both ingredients in our churches, that this will make a massive impact upon our society. Do you know what I believe? I think we should be more into the word. And I actually think we should be more into the things of the spirit. So were you guys are really into the things of spirit? I don't think so. I think we've got a long, long way to go. You guys are really good on the basis of the word of God. I think we've got a long way to go. Thirdly, the kind of church that's going to make an impact is a church that's mission-minded. My church may be similar to yours. I don't know what your history is, but I would describe us as a a church that many years ago uh, bought into what I would call restoration teaching, which was basically... The church over centuries has lost the way in lots of different areas. God is now restoring those things to us. And I think that's been a great journey. And incidentally, I think there's still things that God wants to restore. And I think there's some churches who have been restored that aren't. (laughs) And they need to still be on that journey. But there is a wonderful process of God restoring things that have been missing. But I bought into this kind of concept which was like this. And once the church is restored, the world will come flocking in. And the reason is because, well, church was rubbish and now it's wonderful. And then the the world would say, oh, I didn't know church was like this. We'll all come in. That bit didn't happen. Now, that doesn't diminish the importance of restoring things to the church that have been missing. But it doesn't guarantee that, in fact, the church has no idea that the church has been, the world has no idea that the church has been restored. Maybe we're meant to be restored so that we become more effective at reaching people. We've still got to go, they're not going to come to us. And the way I believe that we will go is to now help people in our churches. Spirit-filled Christians, restored Christians, to understand this. The primary reason for our existence is not the blessing of Christians, but the equipping of God's people to be evangelistic and to reach those people who do not know Jesus, to the extent that everything we do as a church community is dominated by the concept of being a people on mission, so that we become a mission-minded community. My, whole, my church at home has gone through this. It's taken about five years to turn this thing around. And this is what we've discovered, because some people say, all you ever talk about now is mission. That means we've lost family. No, 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 no. You keep family, and you keep it in the context of mission. Do we love pastoring people? We do. But this is how we pastor people. We put our arms around people and we say, we would love to pastor you and help you with your problems, but we're going to do it in movement. We're going somewhere. We're moving together. Oh, but I want to be in church where you just look after me. I'm sitting still. Well, maybe we're not the kind of church that you should be a part of. I know a very good one around the corner. You can go to that one. Because we do believe in pastoring people. We do believe in counselling people. We do believe in helping people. But it must be in the context of mission. Do you get that? It's a, it's a mind change. It's a shift in our thinking. But only churches, I think particularly in the UK, 
the only future that we've, any of us have got is that we become mission-minded communities. It's the only way we're going to grow. It's the only way it's going to really happen. Can I encourage you to make sure that you're in a church that is constantly mission-minded? Number four, a community of diversity. It's already been touched on over this weekend, but may I just add to this that for me this is a no-brainer. The church of Jesus Christ has got to be made up of men and women, rich and poor, black and white, slave and free, old and young, different classes, different colors, different languages, different cultures. It needs to be a community of diversity. This is full of battles. This is full of changes. This is full of obstacles that have to be overcome. But if you have a theological conviction that the local church should be reaching every strata of society, then your church should represent that. So I visit a church and I walk in and I think, oh dear, everybody's one type of person. Everybody's one colour. Now, you can be one colour if everybody else in your town is the same colour. But if you're, if, you're in a, if you're in a place where 30% or 40% of the people aren't the same colour as you, but you're all white, something dramatically needs to change. You're not reaching your community. And even age is the same thing. Can I just say this? I think the church is meant to be a family. And uh, that means you're pastoring people who are young. You're pastoring couples who are having children. You're pastoring people who are in their middle ages. You're pastoring people who are old. My church has never been so diverse in terms of age. It's great. It's a great challenge. You know, if everybody liked the same music at the same volume, that would be a doddle. That's not a church, by the way. I, visit, I was a bit facetious. I visited a church quite recently where the average age was 25. Everybody is that age. They all look the same. They all dress the same. They all like the same kind of music. And that particular morning, this is in the afternoon, that morning we baptized a 92-year-old lady in our church. And I just milked this and I said, and that's real church when that sort of thing is happening. We've got to be diverse. Why? Because we're a reflection of the family of God, a reflection of diversity in our community. So important. And I think in a world falling apart in every way, isn't it amazing to be in a community where God's people are all coming together? Oh, I'd like to say more than that. Two more to go. Number five, we are a church that has a passion for our locality, but we also have a passion for the nations of the world. Uh, we call this at home glocal church. And these are two words put together, as only Americans can do. The word local and, glo- and global. You put them together, you get glocal. And actually, that's what your church should be like. Passionate about reaching the neighborhood, but equally passionate about having a vision for the nations of the world. And you know, one of the great advantages about being in a family of churches is is you are often provoked not to be parochial. This weekend is a reminder to us of what God is doing around the world. Dave Devonish can talk about cities that I've never, ever even heard of. In fact, I think he just makes them up because none of us would know any different anyway. But he's been there, so he knows that it's there. It's just a constant reminder. I can get trapped in my little world. I'm in a town of 25,000 people. We've got 150 people, and this is it. You need to help your congregation lift up their eyes and realize they're part of the biggest global changing movement that has ever existed. And they're part of it. And we can be creative in ways that we constantly lift up people's eyes to see what God is doing around the world. I passionately believe every local church should have a global vision. And finally, number six, we need to be a community where the presence of God is manifest 
now, today. God's desire is for a manifestation of his presence. And we need to be those who long to give him the freedom and the room to allow his presence to be amongst us. It's his presence that makes the difference for everyone. I was chatting to a guy recently. Maybe you don't have these problems in, in the north of England, but we do where we come from. I was chatting to a guy recently. His church has got people who have been in the church for a long time. He's got lots of new people from uh, a different other traditions that are looking in. He's got a whole crowd of unbelievers every Sunday. He said to me, we no longer know what to do with our worship. I said, why? He said, well, because we don't know whether the worship should be for the ones who have been with us for years or whether the worship should be for those who are visiting us from other traditions. So we constantly teach them why we worship the way we do. And then we don't know whether we should swing the whole thing around and dial down on everything so that it's just for the unbelievers who are packing in. He said, it's become very confusing. I said, it sounds like it has. And all the conversation was, Dave, give me some advice. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what to say to you, but this is what came out of my mouth. I think you've lost the plot, mate. Oh my goodness, what am I saying? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're worried about these people, you're worried about these people, you're worried about these people. I said, I think you should go back to worshipping Jesus. I felt so stupid saying this. And he's going, uh-huh. I said, because you're trying to please everybody in the room, if you came back to worshipping the only one in the room that knows how to deal with everybody else in the room, then things would start to change. And do you know what he said to me? You're right. <laughs> We've forgotten. We've forgotten why we're here. This is the point I want to make. The presence of God is the key to sorting out those who have been with you for 30 years, those who have been with you for three days, and all those unbelievers, hallelujah, that are on Alpha and popping in because they want to see what it's like. Don't apologize. Set the presence of God come. We had a meeting earlier this year. I'm going to close with this because we need to finish. And um, so a, a couple in our church have brought a, a couple of non-Christians with them. These non-Christians have never, ever been in any kind of church in their lives. And I knew this couple a little bit because I'd met them before. And I turn around and on my left-hand side, there's the couple that's there. Now, it's very interesting going through a meeting, looking at it through the eyes of someone who's never been in a meeting before. And secretly on the front row, I'm saying, Lord, please, can we do something here that will really um, kind of register with these people? Because I know they've never been into anything like this. Well, the meeting took off and it really, really took off. And there were tongues and interpretations and, and singing in the spirit. Uh, there were people with words of knowledge and it was very raucous and everyone was very happy. And I was dying. Uh, the only one in the room is dying. Here I am, the one who's forgotten what this is all about. Because all I'm thinking of, that's it, they'll never come again. This is weird, this is strange. They're going to completely... And then that morning, a guy got up, one of our elders got up to preach and he preached an absolutely wonderful, outstanding word really about justification by faith. And it was brilliant. And I relaxed. And I thought, well, it didn't get anything in the, the worship, but this is brilliant. They'll get this. This is, this is tremendous communication. It's simple. They can understand it. The meeting comes to an end. I shoot straight over to them. And I say, so, first time with us, how did it go? What's your experience? What, what do you think? Do you know what they said to me? They said, well, in that singing that you did, it was amazing. Uh, I felt strange and connected, and I felt it was wonderful. And when that guy spoke, didn't understand a word he said. <laughs> I thought, this is impossible. Their interpretation of what was going on was completely the opposite to mine. And the reason they didn't understand what he was talking about was this. They didn't have a reference point for words like justification and righteousness. It's just they'd never heard these things before. But when they were in the meeting, they experienced something of the reality of the presence of God. You and I cannot afford to shortchange 
visitors to our meetings by dialing down on the presence of God, thinking that somehow they'll be pleased as a result. They've no, they've no idea anyway. And I think this is a major ingredient for the kind of church that will impact our society that's not afraid to allow the presence of God to be the feature. Amen. Amen. Shall we just pray? Thank you, Lord, for the vision of the church that you are building. It's not a mystery to us. We turn to your scriptures and we see pictures and illustrations of the kind of church that you are establishing. And Lord, I want to see this this afternoon a room full of people that become ruined for nothing less than that which you were doing. Can we believe for a day when this kind of church so eloquently described to us there in the first century could be our reality today? I believe, Jesus, you're building your church and Just like the illustration from Bill Hybels, I pray for a spiritual ambush for many of us. We've heard this stuff before, a lot of us. Let it grip our hearts again. That we will plant and we will see established churches like this that really can and will make an impact upon our society. And while we're here, Lord, we pray for churches like this whether they're part of New Frontiers or whatever they might be a part of, all over, to be established. We're not worried about the denominational label or what they call themselves. We just want to see an increase in the manifestation of the presence of God amongst your people. In every town, every city, every village, everywhere there are people, we're believing for a day when remarkable things will happen through us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 You're free to go. God bless you.